Good morning. And just a reminder that this morning, you will get out what you put in. If you leave here today saying you got nothing out of church, that's on you, not on me. All right? I'm just going to lay it out there. It's on you. It's not on me, right? Because this is God's word. We're in God's house. Even if I'm the worst speaker in the world, right? We've all heard some of them. Hopefully not too much for me. But if it's God's word, there's something in there, right? So if you have your heart open and you're ready to hear from God, you will. And something can happen during this time or else you can just leave for, okay, well, we just went to church and nothing really happened. Now, now we're going to continue in our series, Powerful Passages, and we're going to unpack 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 5, verse 11, in a conversation that I'm calling the return of the, of the king. Okay, church, are you ready? Okay, I got two people ready. All right, that's good. Uh, that's better than zero. And let's do this. I, I'm going to read the first half of this passage and then pray us into our time of study in his word. Sound like a plan? Y'all good with that? Doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyhow. All right. Here we go. Just listen. God's word. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant. No, I won't do that. I'll say turn to the person right left and say, don't be ignorant. Yeah, go ahead and do that. Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. Agnaeo. It means to be uninformed, to be, to not understand, to not be aware or realize, to not know, to be wrong. We do not want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be uninformed, be unaware, to not realize about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, help us today to hear your word. Help us, Holy Spirit, to hear exactly what the Father would like to say to us. I pray that you enable me to speak your word in a way that brings you honor and brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, understand the return of the king, the second coming of Christ. You know, the first coming being when he wore flesh, first as a baby in a manger, then later as a savior on a cross, is a major theme in the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, Every chapter, Paul concludes by talking about the second coming. In chapter 1, Paul is telling these Jesus followers that their faith in God has become known everywhere, that it literally rang out from them, like everybody is talking about them. I mean, social media is just lighting up with tweets, tweets and posts about them. And he says this, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God living in true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming what? The coming what? The coming wrath. Whose wrath? 
God's wrath. God's wrath is coming and we need to be rescued from it. And then in chapter 2, Paul's talking about how he was with them and he was kind of forced to leave them, but he wants them to know that even though I had to leave you physically, that you never left my thoughts. And he says this, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. In chapter 3, Paul encourages them with these words. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and our Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And then he ends chapter 4 with these words, which we already read from verse 17. Paul's saying, hey, those who are asleep in death will rise first. Then he says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. And then he wraps up this letter with these words. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Somebody say, he will do it. I understand the Jesus followers in Thessalonica were anxiously waiting for the turn of Christ. In fact, like most of the believers in the first century, they thought Jesus would come back in their own lifetime. Result, they had some powerful emotions in regards to his coming. Some were anxious because they had loved ones who had died, and they were concerned that somehow they would be at a disadvantage when Christ returns. Others were anxious about the same thing that many of us are anxious about. Like, how can I be sure, like really sure, that when he comes back, I'm actually going to be ready. Question, do you have any concerns about the second coming of Christ? Seriously, I mean, think about it. Do you feel ready? Like, what if he returned before our service ended today? Are you ready? Uh, What if you knew that at 4 p.m. this Friday, Jesus is returning? Would this week, would your this week be any different than your last week? Or there's some things you would say, I need to do some things to get ready. And are you concerned about, hey, what happened to your loved ones who died in Christ? And what will happen to you if you die in Christ before he returns? And so Paul, knowing these two concerns, addresses both of them in our text. And in so doing, underscores three powerful truths about the second coming. Truths that are intended to give you and I encouragement Question, could you use some encouragement? Some solid, unshakable encouragement as we live in a dark, broken, upside, stinking down world, right? It's crazy out there. And believe when I tell you that these early Christians, they too needed some deep, long-term encouragement. Not only because they had concerns about the second coming, because as one commentator that I read this week wrote in the introduction to this letter, In his book, he says this, As a small young church in a big pagan city, the Thessalonian Christians face challenges to their faith at every turn. Persecution, social pressure, temptations of the old lifestyle, conflict with new brothers and sisters in Christ, and surrender to despair were constant threats. Whatever the confidence with which they began their Christian pilgrimage, these believers now faced, were now faced with the daily ordeals of life in Christ living in hostile surroundings. Wow. 
Paul reminds the readers repeatedly that the work God began in them will not be complete until he returns. They therefore can look forward to his return with great expectancy. Remember that even death itself will be totally defeated and living each moment in faithfulness as they await the fulfillment of the relationship with Christ. And he concludes the introduction to his commentary with these words. The situation for Christians nearing the beginning of the third millennium is not much different from the one that Paul addressed. And so his reminders remain timely. The truth and power of the gospel, the love and integrity which characterizes Christ's people, and the living hope of Christ's returns are especially relevant to people confronted with the contemporary diseases of relativism, hatred, selfishness, and despair. The conviction that this universe will end with God's eternal triumph is as foreign to modern thinking as is the idea that it began with God's command. I'm going to read that again. The conviction that this universe will end with God's eternal triumph is as foreign to modern thinking as is the idea that it began by God's command. But apart from such conviction that Christ will return triumphantly, can humanity find meaning in what seems to be chaos? And without the conviction of God's eternal triumph, can humanity find a basis for making moral decisions? I understand the return of Christ is like, you can see my notes, I got big letters on the side, is a huge deal. And listen, it's your conviction and belief in it, and my conviction and belief in it, that gives us the much needed perspective as we live in a dark, broken, sinful, upside down world. A world where insanity, a world where, a world where sanity and acceptance of God's truth is harder and harder and harder and harder to find. It's our conviction that one day Christ will turn triumphantly that gives us the perspective that we need. Amen? Amen. The hope in his return. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant. Turn to, no, it didn't work so well last time. I won't do that again. Because I was, I was pretty ignorant to think you would say other people were ignorant. That was ignorant of me. Okay? I'm not well. I was on a submarine underwater radiation, sleeping next to a Mark 48 torpedo sometimes, so explain some things. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I don't think I need to tell you that grief is a powerful human emotion, right? And regardless of how firm your faith is, the loss of a loved one causes a profound emotional impact and often causes you to make life adjustments that last for months or even years. A Canadian, a Canadian pastor put it this way when he lost his child. The struggle is to bring our faith and our emotions together. You ever had that struggle? The struggle to bring together what you believe and the emotions that you are feeling. And listen, grief can stir up some unsettling questions about those who've died. What's happened to them? Are they okay? Will we see them again? And such questions arise, not because of, only because of our concern for our loved ones, but because their death reminds us of our own mortality, which can be very uncomfortable. As I said earlier, many of the Thessalonian Christians were concerned that their loved ones who had died in Christ would somehow be at a disadvantage when the Lord returns. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Have you ever seen people grieve without hope? Back when, a while, many years back when we were in Orlando, a funeral home called up and a family wanted to use our building for a service. They didn't want us to have any part in it. They just wanted to use our building. And my only job was to open the building and to shut down the building. And let me tell you, the grief and wailing that I witnessed that day, it was deep, it was heartbreaking, it was hopeless. In fact, I can still see them standing outside. Those images were so burned in my mind, I can still see them standing outside by their cars, just weeping and wailing, because they had no hope. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what has happened to those who have died, who are falling asleep. Now, falling asleep is a term used many times in the New Testament to talk about death. And he does not want them to grieve like people who have no hope. So is Paul forgetting people to grieve? No. Is it wrong for a Christian to grieve? Did Jesus ever grieve over the death of someone? He did. See, grieving is natural. In fact, it's it's pretty much unnatural for someone not to grieve if they suffered a great loss. And and, and let me make a, a brief practical application. One of the worst things that we can do is to not allow the time and the space for somebody to grieve. And say things like, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't cry. You know where they are. You should be happy. They're in heaven. Yeah, they're in heaven. They're not here. That's why I'm not happy. Right? I mean, they should grieve. And not for their loved one, but for the fact that they had a great loss in their life. And it's painful. It's not as God designed it. So Paul's not forgetting us, to, forbidding us to grieve. He says, don't grieve like people that don't have hope. And in Paul's day, most people didn't have hope in death. Theocritus, one of their poets, wrote this. The poet and philosopher of the time, Theocritus, said, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Amen. A typical inscription on the grave at the time read this way. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. And see, much of our world does not have hope after death. That's why people don't avoid talking about death. That's why we'll do whatever we can to pr- prolong this life because we're afraid of death. But newsflash, right? You're going to die, right? Since Genesis 3, the death rate has been 100%, right? You're going to die. It, it's just a fact. And if people ever talk about death, sometimes they tell jokes just to cover up their real fear. Like film producer Woody Allen who said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? Ha ha, funny, 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 right? No, it's not. And this lack of hope and death is illustrated well in this encounter that Alexander Campbell, one of the founders of the Restoration Movement, which we're a part of in the late 1700s, and one day Campbell was walking with a guy named Robert Owens, an atheist who he's about to debate, and they're walking through Campbell's estate in Bethany, Virginia. And as they passed by Campbell's small family cemetery, Owen stopped and turned to Campbell and said, there's an advantage I have over Christians. I'm not afraid to die. He says he believed that most Christians are afraid of death. And he said, hey, if I could take care of some affairs of my life, I would be ready to die at any moment. And Campbell said right away, you say that you have no 
fear in death, but do you have any hope in death? And after expressive pause, the philosopher replied in the negative. And then pointing to an ox standing contently in the nearby field, Campbell answered, then you are on a level with that brute. He's fed till satisfied, stands in the shade, whisking the flies with his tail, and he has neither hope nor fear in death. And that's so true for our world, right? Even if they don't fear death, they do not have hope in death. But such is not the case for us. Not only should we not fear death, but actually our greatest hope is in our death. And this hope is based on two things. It's based on an expectation that Jesus will return. Jesus is with his followers walking to the garden, and his disciples are freaking out. They're troubled about his death, about his departure. And Jesus says these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. Amen? Is that true? In this passage... Jesus clearly and intentionally is setting up the expectation that he's going to return. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, you know, Jesus returns back to the Father, and his disciples, like, they're still looking up in the sky, like, man, that was awesome. Looked at their watch, okay, you should be back in any minute, right? And an angel appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So our hope is based on an expectation that Jesus will return, and it's based on a belief. Check this out. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. I understand the resurrection of Jesus is the very foundation and cornerstone of our faith. And because Jesus has risen, we too will rise one day. And check out what Jesus said to a lady named Martha. Her brother had been buried in a tomb for four days. And you probably have heard these words before, but hear them again, maybe as if for the first time. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. My line is, whoever lives and believes in me, your line is, will never die. Okay? If we do it well and loud and excited like we believe it, I can move on or else then i got to hang out here longer and you're going to be last in line at the restaurant today, okay? And you don't want that. You guys ready? Whoever lives and believes in me, I'll give you a, a four, right? Whoever lives and believes in me, whoever lives and believes in me, whoever lives and believes in me, amen, it's true. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who are falling asleep in him. There is hope in the return of our king. And it's a living hope, an expectation of a new and better life in our forever home. Now, before we move on to the reality of his return, I want to talk briefly about the condition of our loved ones who've died in Christ. Anybody got any loved ones who died in Christ? Right? Here's two things. Number one, they are with Jesus. Right? That's where they are. And notice Paul says, for we believe that Christ died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul's talking about how our bodies is tent. You may like camping in a tent, but probably living in a tent 24-7 for 70 years, probably not that much fun, right? He says this tent wears out and we groan and we long to have a different body, a newer body. And Paul says this, we are confident, and I say, prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know, so your loved one, in Christ right now is with Jesus. They're away from their body, but they're home with the Lord, right? And a place called paradise. Now, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about paradise, but if it's with Jesus, I think it's going to be awesome, amen, right? And the Bible tells us what we need to know. And if it told us everything we need to know, we couldn't know it because we're not smart enough to know it because we're not omniscient. So, anyhow. And number one, your loved ones are conscious. They don't have a physical body. And I have no idea how that works. That's like way, way, way above my pay grade. But according to Scripture, they are conscious and awake. There are some who try to teach that they're asleep and unconscious. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Luke 16, Jesus talks about a guy named Lazarus and a rich man. And they were both very awake and very conscious. Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, verse 43, Today you will be asleep with me. No, he says, Today you'll be with me. In paradise. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees this picture of a multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're crying out in worship. Hard to do in your sleep, all right? Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 21 through 23, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for me that I remain in the body. And again, to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. Question, do you find it encouraging to know that your loved ones who died in Christ are with him right now and are awake and aware, having the time of their life in paradise? No more sorrow, no more pain, no more hurt, no more living in a broken world. And as much as they love you, if you said, hey, could you come back? They say, no way, I'll just wait for you here, right? They don't want to leave. They're, they're in a much better place than we are, amen? That's where they are. That's comforting, that's encouraging. Now let's talk about the reality of his return. You see, all, all of human history is moving towards four climactic events. A return, a resurrection, a rapture, and a reunion. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Jesus is coming again. And when our king returns, it will not be like his first coming. 
where he was mocked, where he was beaten, where he was spit upon, where he was shoved, where he was crucified on the cross, where he was clothed only in the blood that flowed from his body. Understand, men will not beat Jesus again. They will not mock Jesus again. They will not hurt Jesus again. They will not do anything to Jesus again. Listen, someday, and it may be real soon, all the activity and sounds of this world will be suddenly and dramatically interrupted. And the entire earth will resound with this loud shout and the voice of the archangel and the blast of God's trumpet call, gathering his people and announcing his return. And the sky will crack open and Jesus will return in glory and clothed with power. And all the earth will see him. And on his robe and thigh will be ridden, King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee on earth and in heaven will bow down. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, all of history is moving towards this climactic and culminating event, the return of the King. Amen? I mean, it's true. I mean, do you believe it? Uh, Missionary Gregory Fisher writes, what will he say when he shouts? The question took me, took me by surprise. I already found that West African Bible college students can ask some of the most penetrating questions about the most minute details of Scripture. Pastor, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that Christ will descend from heaven with a loud command. I would like to know what that command is. He goes on, I want to leave the question unanswered. To, help, to tell them that we must not go past what scriptures have revealed, but my mind wandered to an encounter I had early in the day with a refugee from the Liberian Civil War. The man, a high school principal, told me how he was apprehended by a two-man death squad. After several hours of torture, he narrowly escaped. And hiding in the bush for two days, he was able to find his family and escape to a neighboring country. But the escape cost him dearly. Two of his children lost their lives. I also saw flashbacks of beggars that I passed by on the way to my office. Every day, he writes, I see how poverty destroys dignity, routes men of the best what it means to be human, and sometimes substitutes the worst of what it means to be an animal. I'm haunted by the vacant eyes of people who have lost hope. Pastor, you haven't given me an answer. (laughs) What will he say? The question hadn't gone away. Enough, I said. When When he returns, he will shout, enough. The student had a look of surprise on his face. What do you mean enough? Enough suffering. Enough starvation, enough terror, enough war, enough hatred, enough death, enough injustice, enough indignity, enough lies, enough deceit, enough lies trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough sin and corruption, enough heartache and sorrow, enough pain and broken families. Enough! For Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, enough! I'm done with this. I'm making all things new. All of history is moving towards a return and also towards a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise. Again, the believers in Thessalonica were worried about their loved ones who had fallen asleep, died in the Lord. Are they going to be at a disadvantage when he returns? You see, when we die physically, right, our body and spirit are separated. Our body goes on the ground or we cremated or whatever, right? And our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And so right now, my loved ones are just spirit, just spirit only. I don't understand. <laughs> but it's going to be good because you're with Jesus, right? But that's not to be the final state. 
You see, God created both body and spirit, and when Christ returns, once again, we'll have a body and a spirit, but it'll be a different body, a better body, an imperishable body, and a mortal body. Like, this is like true. 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I remember a nursery I saw in a church in Florida that above the nursery, it said, it said that very thing. It said, uh, or it said, not all will be asleep, but all will be changed, right? You know? It's like right, right above the nursery you had those words. That is so out of context, but so funny. In a flash, in the twinkle of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the immortal, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen. And what that a resurrected body is going to be like, I don't know. But it's going to be amazing. A body free from pain, free from disease, free from sin, and free from the negative effects of all those fun carbs we like to eat, right? At least that's, you know, all those carbs that we like that don't work well for us. It's going to be a great body, a new body. It's going to be just like Jesus' body. For real. Don't believe me? Check this out. If this doesn't blow you away, I don't know what to tell you. We eagerly await the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, like everything, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like one day, all the chaos will be brought under his control. You know, all these people who think they're in charge, guess what? They're not. People in Washington are in charge, and China are in charge. No, they're not in charge. God's in charge. He's sovereign, not them. He's the king, not them. And one day it's going to be evident. He will bring everything under control. And then he'll transform our lowly bodies. Turn to the person next to you and say, you got a lowly body. No, don't say that. Okay. Say, man, you're going to have a good body one day. Don't say that either, right? That blows me away. It's true. All history is moving towards a return, towards a resurrection, and towards a rapture. After that, we are still alive and left. We caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, now, the word rapture is never used in the Bible. It's actually the Latin word rapire, which translates the Greek word herpazo, right? That's where we get the word rapture. It, it's, it's the word caught up, right? Herpazo, caught up. And it carries the following meaning, this word herpazo, right? To carry away speedily, the claim for oneself to move to a new place to rescue from danger. And see, at the trumpet call of God, the king will return to carry us away, to claim us as his own, to take us to a new place, and to rescue us from danger. What danger? The greatest danger there is. The wrath of God. Scripture said it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the angry God. You don't want to get in the way of the wrath of God. He took care of that wrath at the cross, right? But it's a serious deal. And it all happened in the twinkling of an eye, right? Like those who are with Christ now and 
don't have a body, and boom, they got a body. Now they're in the air. And we here, well, boom, new body, and we meet Jesus in the air. And we'll be caught up together with them in the air, which moves us towards a reunion. Like the greatest reunion ever. We are still alive and are left. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. You will see them again. Those loved ones who have gone on before you in Christ, you will see them again. And can you imagine how great it's going to be? I mean, to be in your new body, to be in the air with Jesus, and to be reunited with your loved ones. Come on, close your eyes for a moment. And think about those you love who are with the Lord right now. Just think about them. And think about one day, and it's true, it will happen. Think about, think about seeing them again. Think about holding them again. And think about having conversations with them again. Think about slapping them high fives as you race through the clouds in heaven together, right? And your new bodies. See, one day that will be your forever reality. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Which, by the way, is the ultimate reunion, right? Being with the Lord. See, all of human history, whether they want to acknowledge or not, are moving towards a return, a resurrection, a rapture, and the greatest reunion ever. Good stuff. True stuff. So we talked about the hope in his return. The reality of his turn, we got one more point left, the preparation for his return, you know, being ready, which I think is an important conversation. Because here's the deal. If we are not prepared for his coming, our forever will not be that great resurrected reunion with the Lord, but rather the eternal sufferings of hell. If we are not ready, our forever will not be that great resurrected reunion with the Lord. It will be eternal suffering of hell. An important conversation. And that's why at 9.45 a.m. yesterday, in my pastor's sermon cave, I decided, you know what? This conversation requires deserves and demands more time than I'm going to have on this Sunday. And so we're going to unpack this truth next week. And I'm kind of excited about it because i got more time to dive into this, these 11 verses that talk about something that will impact our forever. Like, yeah. are you prepared for his return? Are, are you? Do you know people who are not prepared? Man, I just want to encourage you, right? To be here. Invite some people. Maybe it's not, you think, well, I want to invite him. He's talking about fun, loving stuff. Hey, sorry. Nothing's more loving than having people go to heaven and spend eternity with Jesus. That's, more, that's the most loving thing we could do. Help lost people find Jesus. It may not be fun and all, all, all butterflies and ponies and stuff, you know, but we need to talk about it, right? 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who are falling asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who are falling asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, enough! With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, get their new body. After that, we are still alive and are left. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, since we're not ignorant, since we, we are not uninformed, since we are aware and realize, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you find encouragement from these words? Do you find encouragement that the final chapter is a good chapter, right? That no matter how crazy the world is, it's heading towards something pretty wonderful for us who are in Christ. You find encouraging knowing where your loved ones are, that they're with Jesus. That you know how this thing ends. I'm going to give you an analogy, and I've used it before, but it's a good one, so I'll use it again. On February the 5th, 2017, around 9.30 p.m., I was not doing so good. I wasn't happy. I was disappointed. I was discouraged. You see, it was Super Bowl 51. <laughs> and the Patriots were losing 28-3. People were in my house making fun of me. Oh, you know they were. I'm squeezing my leg trying to act like a Christian. <laughs> and I'm getting bruises on my legs just squeezing them. People are texting me, how are you liking the game? At that point, Lady Gaga was my highlight. I didn't even watch it. It was terrible. But it ended very well. And I got to admit, you can ask Steve Lord, she's done the same thing. I've watched that game again like 20 times. And you know what? I'm not stressed. Oh, Tom had to pick six. Who cares? They're trash talking us on the sideline. Who cares? The owner's doing the dance on the sideline. Who cares? Tackle for a loss. Who cares? Because I know how it ends. It is so much fun. I'll probably watch it this week. It's so much fun. <laughs> because I know how it ends. And, and, and we know how it ends. And we'll get tackled for a loss sometimes. You know, we're going to throw a pick six sometimes. And sometimes, maybe now in your life, you're going to look at the scoreboard. It's like, gosh, I'm getting crushed. You know how it ends. He wins. And we go home. Amen? And that's what the second coming is supposed to do. When we believe that, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes our perspective in this crazy, lost, broken hurting, upside down, insane world that we happen to find ourselves in. But guess what? It's always been dark, crazy, broken, and insane, right? Always been this way. It's always been broken. But he's coming back to take us home. Amen? Amen. Uh, we're going to sing a song. If you guys would stand. And uh, remember, next week, we're going to talk about the preparation for his coming. And uh, we're having our 
mission meal afterwards. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, it's so easy to get discouraged in our own lives or as we look at the world sometimes and it seems like evil is winning the day. It seems that wrong is winning the day. But God, in the end, the end has already been written. And you will return. And you will win. And you will return victoriously. So God, as we sing this song right now, as we prepare for communion, the thing that that gives us hope, hope beyond the grave, because we believe that Jesus died and and he rose again. Lord, may that truth and the truth that he's coming back to take us home be the cornerstone of our lives. Father, help us to sing this song like we mean it. In Jesus' name, amen.